0: It's
1: time for the Football Insider episode of the Inside the Game Cox podcast. Here's JC Sherbert and
0: Tony Morrell. It's Wednesday. That means it's the Inside Football episode of the Inside the Game Cox podcast. JC Sherbert here with you, uh, along with Tony Morrell, the GCI. Tony, another Wednesday. And uh, we haven't lacked for news uh, and, and drama. I don't like using the word drama so much, but uh, things to talk about. Here in the month of February, uh, halfway through it almost, uh, South Carolina, you know, after Jordan Birch got in the boat last week, and we'll talk about the Birch scenario, kind of give you some behind-the-scenes stuff on that, um, all of a sudden some coaching changes popped up. Thomas Brown leaves, goes to the Rams. John Scott Jr. leaves, goes to Penn State, uh, which there was some speculation about that before, but it really heated up on Thursday. Uh, On top of that, there's talk that Brian McClendon, uh, could be on the move going somewhere else. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it looks like there's going to be even more staff changes this year on top of the the Coleman-Hutzler departure and the Dan Werner departure uh, that we already knew about. Um, so looking at it, you know, so it, it, you know I'd, I'd, hesit, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Matt Lindsay, um, the director of player personnel, going on for, you know, what what's a promotion uh, at Ole Miss at assistant athletic director's Type of job. He's going to be the general manager of Ole Miss football. Um, so, two of these jobs got, got filled pretty quick Tracy Rocker uh, coming in for John Scott Jr. to coach the defensive line, uh, and then Drew Hughes coming in from Tennessee as well as the director of player personnel. Um, I've been talking about Rocker all week. I think he's one of the best defensive line coaches in the country. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like he's an uber recruiter uh, like some people are out there. Um but I think he's one of the best guys in terms of, of coaching and development and spotting talent, uh which is what I which is why I think he's a great fit at South Carolina. You know, Drew Hughes, Tony, a guy I've known about for a while. He's with Muschamp at Florida. Um the timing just hasn't worked out for him to be at South Carolina until now. Um I I you know, there's not a whole lot of difference uh between Drew Hughes and Matt Lindsey other than you know, they're both talented guys and have been at different places. You know, so so as quickly as that happened, you know, I, I thought those were two uh, really strong hires by Muschamp, uh, you know, with the departure of two key people.
1: No question. Yeah. And it gives you an idea of, of, I think, how quickly Muschamp would like to move on, you know, the running back's job once he finds his guy. And then if he ends up having to hire another coach, if, if Brian McClendon does leave, then I would think he'd, he'd move pretty quickly there, too. So. You know, with spring practice only a couple of weeks away, I think he wants to get his his staff in place completely uh, to begin preparation for spring practice and and you know know who's going to be coaching each position and and get everybody on the same page before practice begins. But okay. I agree with you on Rocker. I think he's a a really good fit from a coaching standpoint and a personality standpoint. You know, he's he's been in the the Nick Saban defensive system, which is what. Uh, South Carolina runs what Georgia ran what Tennessee uh, ran under Jeremy Pruitt Uh, so he knows what Will Muschamp is is looking for from his defensive line he knows what he's looking for from the players that he wants to bring into the program and uh, and and has a, a good track record of not only taking players and making them better as players but also as people and and has that kind of relationship with his players you've seen some of the quotes from the Tennessee players uh, you know, he was only with for for two years, but he certainly made an impact on those guys. And, and you can see it in, in the things they've gone out of their way to say about him on social media and in interviews. Uh, so, you know, he, he the, the big question I, I have with him is, is, you know, is he? Going to be as motivated as a recruiter as he needs to be, and I would have to think that's a conversation Will Muschamp has had with him, and and he he understands coming into the program that that recruiting is part of the deal, and and he's going to you know have to to certainly pull his weight there, especially at a, at. Uh, an important position like the defensive line uh, but I, I don't think there's any question he has that ability it's just whether the motivation is there and uh, and I'm sure like I said those two have had that conversation I don't think Muschamp would have hired him if he didn't get a satisfactory answer and then on Drew Hughes you know he's Muschamp's tried to hire him before I really liked what he did for him at Florida and tried to bring him with him when he took the South Carolina job Hughes chose to stay at Florida under Jim McElwain, and then you know, eventually made his way to Tennessee after McIlwain was fired, and uh, you know has done a good job everywhere he's been, and you know helped Tennessee put together a you know top ten type class, top twelve type class this past year. And and I can tell you that that uh, Philip Fulmer, Jeremy Pruitt, and Jim Cheney, all three met with uh, Drew Hugh separately, and or at least talked to him and and tried to get him to change his mind to stay at Tennessee. Uh, but he he chose to come to South Carolina, and, and I think that that says a lot about what he thinks of Will Muschamp as a person and as a coach, and uh, was willing to to come to South Carolina uh, even under you know with with there, there being some uncertainty about the future with the way this last season went. But he believes in Muschamp and and uh, believes he can come in and and help him from a recruiting standpoint and and be a big asset to the program.
0: Yeah, and for those that aren't aware, yeah, South Carolina is structured a little differently as far as recruiting goes, because Muschamp is his own recruiting coordinator. Uh, no, full, none of the full time assistants have that that job. You know, so it's basically when you're talking about the head of the recruiting department, um, it's Will Muschamp, and then you have a guy like this that helps. And that's sort of what Nick Saban does. I don't I don't know that anybody at Bama on that staff has the title recruiting <laughs> coordinator, but they have. These assistant uh, these assistant guys like Matt Lindsay, like a Drew Hughes. Uh, of course, they both were at Bama. Um, and that's just kind of how it works. I, I think that, you know, you look at it, there's always more than one way to do things. But I think that the way they do it at South Carolina, it creates some accountability. Um, it, it gets your best evaluators evaluating uh, that type of thing. On Tracy Rocker, Tony, and, and I look at it this way, you know, you got to kind of look at where you're at sometimes. And at South Carolina – you know, there have been a lot of great defensive linemen come through the state, come through the Carolinas that have gone to Carolina and been, been good. But then there's been a lot of these guys that have, needed, that have been outstanding in their career um, that have needed to be developed. You know, Devin Taylor is probably one of the more recent examples of that. Um, I, I certainly think that group in 2015 when, with Marcavius Lewis and Dante Sawyer and Jones and Stallworth – uh, you know, Lance Thompson, after two years, finally got them playing uh, at a decent level. Um, I think they could use some development. Then uh, you look at the 2021 class around the state. Um, a lot of guys like the Justice Boons of the world that, you know, are, are, you know, guys that can play at this level, but they have to be developed. You can even go back to John Abraham um, and see that, you know, there's a ton of history there with regards to, to under-the-radar defensive linemen that come in, they get coached up. Brad Lawing was one of the best, I think, in the history of the program at doing that. Uh, and this guy, Tracy Rocker, I remember when he was in Arkansas, you know, he would go into Atlanta and he'd sign Jamal Anderson, a two-star kid out of Atlanta. Um, and the guy ended up playing in the NFL, being a first-round pick, and was a, a holy terror for the Razorbacks. This is back when he coached under Houston Nutt. And he's consistently done that. And you look at Tennessee people that know, that, that aren't just on the Internet looking at what five stars they're going to get or whatever, um, and they, they said this guy's going to be a loss because Tennessee's D-line probably doesn't have the talent that they're accustomed to up there and from a raw talent standpoint. And he got that group. That group played better and better as his tenure went on at Tennessee. I think at South Carolina the needs are unique just like any other program and because in your footprint you have a lot of guys that have that high upside and potential, they're not ready-made guys. Um, so the development part on the defensive line to me is critical uh, if you're going to be playing with a full deck in the game with, with the Gamecocks.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And there's there's certainly a lot of players within South Carolina's footprint that fit that bill. Um, even in state, there, there's players like that every year who come out that that need to be developed and, you know, finding guys in North Carolina and Georgia and Florida. And, um, you know, I, I think he fits the bill there for sure. Um, and, uh, I think that, you know, Brad line is a good example of a guy that, you know, really got the most of the defensive line during his time at South Carolina and, and wasn't always playing with the most talented group, but they produced and they were consistent and they were fundamentally sound. And and uh, I think John Scott was on his way to to putting that same kind of group out there for South Carolina, and they got better and better as the year went on. Uh, and Tracy Rocker should be able to to pick up the mantle and, and take it and run with it and, and do a good job as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, you know, the, the fit there uh, I think is, is good. And, and, you know, we even kind of look back at Lance Thompson – who had a long track record of success before he got to South Carolina, probably was not a fit for the program, you know, despite his success. So it's not always about, uh, in my opinion, you know, what other schools think of you, whether or not you're a fit there, it's are you a fit at the at the school that you, you go to. All right, so Jordan Birch <laughs> – uh, so this was interesting, Tony, because fundamentally, at the end of the day, this was only a 24-hour delay in signing a letter of intent. I know it seemed much longer than that because of the commitment before the early period. Um, you know, I wrote a lot about there There was two sets of facts out there. You know, you couldn't ignore the the, the, the evidence that he went to LSU, hadn't cut LSU off. But then there's also, you know, the accurate uh Information that this really had nothing to do with LSU. Um, this was just kind of a—I'm calling it a logistical delay. <laughs> and um, the bottom line is, he signed with South Carolina. I—I I don't know that there was ever any danger of him going elsewhere. I just think it was a, you know, a logistical delay. And uh, is that kind of how you saw it unfold from your?
1: <clears throat> yeah, the, there were so many rumors floating around after he didn't sign signing day morning that it got to the point where I didn't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the vast majority of those rumors were being fueled by people who didn't really know what they were talking about and Gamecock fans who were panicking. (laughs) And, um, in the end, when I asked after the, the, we got word that the, the letter of intent had been signed and had been faxed to South Carolina the answer I got as to what the holdup was, was that his mom works on her own time frame. And nobody was going to tell her when it was time to send it in. She was going to do it when she was ready. And you know he was going to do it when she said it was time. So uh, I think that's, that's really what it came down to, that um, the, you know, his mom controlled this process throughout and did it to the very end and um you know but he got it signed and and i think just in in the nick of time in the sense that you know john scott it came out not long after he signed that john scott was leaving and he was going to potentially be his position coach particularly uh you know if he ends up playing more on the inside although i think scott was going to take over the entire defensive line this year so he would have been a his position coach but that would have given lsu a little bit more ammo to use but uh, in the end, it didn't matter because he signed before that and and you know I like think now you just focus on getting Jordan Birch and alex huntley and and some of these guys who didn't enroll early get them to campus as quickly as possible, you know whether it's during uh you know May semester or at the end of May right before summer one starts, get them on campus as quickly as you can, start working with them and and see which ones are ready to help you in year one.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, and, and look, John Scott Jr. wasn't was wasn't Jordan's primary recruiter. Uh, you know, Mike Peterson, I was told Mike Peterson, Traverse Robinson, Will Muschamp, John Scott in that order. Scott was Alex Huntley's primary recruiter, though, and they had a great relationship. Um, so that was kind of, you're right, in the nick of time. Because regardless, you know, if they hadn't cut LSU off, you know, they're going to sit there and say, hey, these coaches are going to leave mass exodus um and then if you had on top of that thomas brown leaving um and the you know, the other moves that were made uh, i think that could have that could have extended it a much longer um than uh, maybe anybody would have been comfortable with it being extended and, and potentially could have led for to him flipping but uh you're right same thing i heard it's just the mom was on her own time and that was uh that was the time that she elected to do it and uh, I think everybody was happy when it happened. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, from an optics standpoint, keeping a guy like that at home was huge. Um, and, you know, getting him integrated with the program and all, uh, that's going to be big in terms of, like, what kind of impact he can make uh, for the 2020 season. I-, I think myself, my prediction right now for him, Tony would probably be um, – and I hate to use a player comparison like this, but probably like Jadeve and Clowney was used as a freshman. Um, people got to people have to remember, Clowney did not start. He wasn't a starter, but he was a guy that was used in situations. And obviously he played more and more as the year went on. Um, and I'm not saying Birch will have that kind of impact. You know, I, don't, I don't see him game two shaking the ball loose of the quarterback and all that good stuff. But um, I, I think that kind of uh, scenario where you know they're not really counting on him to start, uh, they could just kind of work him in. But he is ready to contribute next year. I think that's kind of what we're looking at with regards to impact from day one by Jordan Birch.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, I don't know that he's going to be a starter early uh, as a freshman, and maybe not at all. Uh, maybe as the year goes on, he could become a starter. But I, I think he's a guy who's going to need some development. He's going to need some time to adjust to the speed of the game. He's going to need to work on his fundamentals of getting off blocks and, and learning to use his hands and, and learning about leverage and just, you know, some of the things that he didn't have to do because a lot of times he was being blocked by a 180 pound, you know, kid that, that he could just overpower or, or, or run right by, uh, with you know, at Hammond. So, uh, you know, it's going to take him a little bit of time, but, You know, he he has a lot of tools for Tracy Rocker to work with, and I would imagine he'll get better and better as his true freshman year goes on and and see his playing time increase as a result of that, much like with Zach Pickens. You know, Pickens uh, didn't have the the, the big flashy plays as a true freshman necessarily, but he played a lot, a lot more than I think a lot of fans realize, and and his playing time went up as the year went on, and I think you're going to see him make a big jump, in year two, and I think you could see a similar progression for Birch.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you there. The people, Pickens playing on the inside like that—you know—you you don't always see kind of play to play the impact he makes, especially if you're following the ball. But I, I thought he—I he, thought he had a really stellar uh, freshman campaign, and I think he is going to start to flash. I think uh, job number one for Tracy Rocker is probably going to be getting Zach Pickens and Rick Sandage to that next level. Because I think they're both – they both have an ability. I mean, if you maximize those two guys next year on the interior, you know, South Carolina's going to have – at least from a starting standpoint, uh, they're going to have some some dudes, as they say, up front. Circling back to the coaching thing, we didn't get into this, uh, so I want to bring it up now. Um, you know, Thomas Brown left. I, You know, Tony, I it was disappointing in a way because – I think Thomas Brown made a big impact on Carolina football in one year. I think he was on his way to making another impact on Carolina football. Um, but I can't really blame him for taking the specific job of the NFL he did. The Rams, great organization. They're opening a beautiful new stadium out there. Uh, Sean McVay, obviously, it speaks for himself. And then the chance to coach Todd Gurley. Um, so I can't say I blame him for taking it. Uh it's going to be interesting to see kind of who they get, uh, whether that's Des Kitchings or Tommy Robinson. And I promised the people on the earlier report we talk about it because it's not done as of right now. Um, it's going to be interesting to see who they get to replace him. But I feel like they can, they can make a hire, especially if it's Kitchings, um, that can impact the program in a big way as well, just like Thomas Brown did.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on Brown. You know, there's only 32 of those type jobs out there, and when you get a chance to to take one with a program like the Rams, who you know were in the Super Bowl two years ago and and you know didn't have the kind of year they were expected to this past year, uh, but I think Sean McVay is one of the best head coaches in the game. Todd Gurley, when healthy, is one of the best running backs in the game and uh you know it it's hard to falter brown uh for for jumping at that opportunity when it presented itself uh and then you you look at the pension plan and the 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 chance if you if you last five years in the n f l you're set for for life pretty much so um i get it i understand it <clears throat> and, and I think marshawn lloyd does too, which is important uh because he had such a good relationship with thomas brown but i and um, I know he was sad to see him go, but I think he understood why he made the move he made It's not like he went to a another SEC program or made a complete lateral move. Um, Des Kitchens, I think, makes all the the sense in the world. Um, When you look at him being a South Carolina native, having played at Wagner Sally, having played his college football at Furman, having recruited the state for NC State uh, the last eight years or so, uh, having been one of NC State's best recruiters in the state of North Carolina, uh, having been a coach whose whose players produced every year uh, at the running back position, sometimes you know playing three and four guys, but it seemed like no matter who they put in there, they were going to produce. Uh, I, I think he he makes a ton of sense uh, in terms of what he brings to the table and and the kind of fit he would be for South Carolina. Uh, you know, I think that um, you know Tommy Robinson is a guy that that had you know I think would have a, a it would take him longer to adjust. He really hasn't recruited the footprint that South Carolina has nearly as much as Des Kitchens. Uh, you know, he, he uh, doesn't really have ties to the program or anyone specifically in the program. Uh, you know, not saying he couldn't do a good job if he ends up being the guy. But I, I just think that, uh, you know, in terms of being able to hit the ground running and, and just being a plug and play guy who's going to fit the system, fit from a recruiting standpoint, fit from a personality standpoint. Fit geographically, uh, I think Des Kitchings makes all the sense in the world. Now, there could also be another candidate or two that, that we don't know about. Uh, I think that the wild card here is Mike Bobo's presence on the offensive staff. And he's worked with a lot of different guys over the years, and it's very possible, you know, he has uh, Will Muschamp speaking to someone that 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 we don't know about publicly yet. The fact that the hire has not happened yet leads me to believe that there may be someone else in the mix there. So I can't completely rule that out. But in terms of the guys we know about, Kitchens and Robinson have both interviewed. Uh, you know, Kitchens did so on Monday. Robinson did so yesterday. I, I think Kitchens makes more sense. Kitchens.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Des Kitching's a guy. I'm just looking at the 2017 class uh, for North Carolina State. Um, He was the number 19 recruiter uh, in the ACC, but you look at the volume, he signed 17 guys. Uh, That wasn't necessarily even a class that was all that highly touted uh, when you're talking about NC State. Um, But in the state of North Carolina, I mean, this guy – it got to the point where, if you remember Savion Jackson and that recruitment where, you know, South Carolina was having a hard time going head-to-head against him. Um, so I, I think that, you know, when, you, when you're looking at the, the state of North Carolina, um, and he was at NC State almost eight years. I mean, it, it's almost a decade he's worked these schools. Um, he's got the relationships there. He's got the relationships in South Carolina. I think the Game guys need all the firepower they can get. And I've actually – I've never heard anybody say anything negative about Des Kitchings, not at Vanderbilt when he was there, not at NC State, not in terms of recruiting battles he's gotten in and won. Because, you know, sometimes you'll hear like, well, this guy threw us under the bus. And, you know, I think that happens. But I've never heard anything negative um, about him. And I've heard a lot of good stuff. Uh, you know, just for the record, you know, we talked about Drew Hughes earlier. Drew Hughes was at NC State for one year. Uh, and Des Kitchens was on that staff. I think that was the end of the Tom O'Brien era uh, before Dave Dorn came in. But um, there is a connection there, Um, and obviously him being a native of the state, he knows Bobby Bentley and all the other in-state guys that are uh, on staff. So we are waiting for that news, and uh, I'm with you. I think Kitchens would be outstanding. Um, So I know we've reported this. We've talked about this. But if Brian McClendon were to leave for the Steelers or another job, um, explain to everybody out there what's going to happen with the staff because it's not just a, you know, pro- probably not going to be just a go hire a receivers coach type of deal.
1: Yeah, I think the most likely scenario is that if, if McClendon leaves, Muschamp and Bobo would move Joe Cox to coach receivers, which is the position he coached the last couple of years at Colorado State. Move Bobby Bentley back to the tight ends coach, which is the position he's coached for, uh, you know, this past season. And is certainly very familiar with the personnel there and the players they signed because he had such a big hand in it. And then hire a linebackers coach on defense. And and that gives them five assistants on offense, five assistants on defense. <clears throat> and hiring a linebackers coach would allow Will Muschamp to focus more on the defense as a whole, focus more on the program as a whole, focus more on recruiting. It would just, you know, take one, one big thing off of his plate. Uh, and, and I think, and certainly he can still help with the, the receipt, with the linebackers rather, he can still help with the safeties, whatever he wants to help with as a head coach, he can do it. <clears throat> but I, I think that's, that's what makes the most sense just from a balance standpoint, because right now they have, you know, more uh, offensive assistants than defensive assistants. So and 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 there was going to be some or, or there will be if it stays this way there'll be some uh some overlap between what Mike Bobo is do, going to do with the quarterbacks versus what Bobby Bentley is going to do with the quarterbacks so cuz right now you know, Bentley's assistantly essentially the the assistant quarterbacks coach but <clears throat> so I'm, I'm not sure how that was going to how that balance was going to work out anyway so I think if he, if he does end up with this flexibility it would make a lot of sense and and would would bring balance back to the to the staff in terms of the number of assistants on each side of the ball.
0: Absolutely. All right. Spring practice starting in two weeks, Tony, um, and we'll probably break down some of the specific battles and stuff. Um, but I always look for overall objectives, you know, and, and, and here, here's obviously the big one that I would start with is the, the installation and not only the installation, but the transformation uh, of the offense. Uh, I think, um, it's a new system, obviously. There's going to be some different things emphasized uh, with a new coordinator. Um, I think that's the one thing I'm looking for right out the gate uh, in terms of uh, objectives for the team this spring.
1: Yeah, you know, Mike Bobo is is going to bring a system with him or install a system that has some similarities to what they did previously. Uh, you know, they they both learned – uh, a lot from Mark Richt and, and, and both being Mike Bobo and Brian McClendon, the former offensive coordinator. So there are going to be some similarities, but there's going to be a lot of differences, too, particularly in the running game. And, and I think in terms of, of mixing up the formations, you know, more under center, uh, you know, using the fullback, using the tight ends in a different way. There's going to be a lot of differences, and and I think the the biggest spotlight is obviously going to be on the quarterbacks. Ryan Helensky will go into spring as the you know the the guy that has a little bit of an edge. Colin Hill will not participate. It doesn't look like as he still recovers from the torn ACL. Luke Doty has enrolled and, and will will um, you know participate in spring practice, and, and I know he's coming in to compete. And with there being a new coordinator and a new quarterback coach. Um, certainly the, it's going to be a bit of an open competition and, and, and Doty is going to get his opportunity in the spring. And then, you know, Colin, Hill will get his chance in the, in the uh, fall once he's back to full speed, but those guys are going to have to pick it up quickly. Uh, and then the running backs are going to have to, to adjust to a much more diverse running game. Uh, a lot of, of, you know, what they did last year was just pretty simple, you know, zone read and uh, and just, you know, delay draws and just different things out of the shotgun. There's going to be a lot more on the running backs, uh, I think, and, and it's a young group. You know, Marshawn Lloyd's a true freshman. Kevin Harris, uh, actually, I've been saying he's a redshirt freshman. He might be a, actually be a true sophomore. He may have blown that redshirt. I need to verify that, but regardless, he's young. Uh, and then Deshaun Fenwick is a, a redshirt sophomore, uh, but ha- has not played a lot, so he- he's going to be working with a-, a young group of running backs and and you know getting that backfield up to speed, and then of course the offensive line as well. They're going to have to adjust to a different system and a different approach, and and I think Bobo is going to ask that group to be more physical than they were the last couple of years. And I think that fits well with what Eric Wolford wants to do with his group. He likes his group to be nasty and aggressive and and physical. And, uh, and I think they're going to get that opportunity in this system.
0: Yeah, I I would, uh, I would anticipate the offensive line being more uh, play. you know, the system is, is more about their strengths um, in terms of the power run game and stuff like that. And, you know, I look around football a lot, Tony and, I think the days of uh, living on zone run plays alone and not having a physical element to your run game a lot, in a lot of cases, I see it in the pros too sometimes, I think those are probably going to come to a close. It's just a gut feeling. I think it'll probably cycle back to more smash mouth techniques. I'm not saying we're going back to the throwing rocks age of football. Obviously, you're going to always have to throw it from here on out. But I think in the run game, some people are going to start wisening up a little bit, making it more diverse. And you know, defenses just aren't used to it. So I, I, I well, I think that. it
1: makes I think it makes more sense if you have a, a running quarterback. You know, yes. if you have a Lamar Jackson, if you have a you know whoever you want to name that's a true threat to to uh, fake the handoff, keep it, and and put pressure on a defense with his legs. Ryan Alinsky is not that guy. Luke Doty could potentially be more of that if he ends up being the starter uh, sometime soon. But uh, running that kind of, uh, of of offense with with a guy, even Jake Bentley, you know, it just it, it didn't fit um, last year, and, and and I think that's part of why they they struggled some uh, in the running game and and struggled some offensively because it just. I don't think it was a great fit for the personnel and, and they didn't show that ability to adjust what they were doing to fit the personnel better as the year went on. But uh, I don't think that'll be an issue with Bobo. I, I think he's he's a guy that that knows how to maximize his personnel and is experienced enough as a uh, you know former head coach and a longtime coordinator to to know how to, to put the pieces together and, and put them in a position to be productive for him.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, doing research on Desk Kitchings, and then we'll wrap it up with uh, kind of a stroll down memory lane. And uh, for those folks out there that, that live and die by rankings, uh, and, and I was heavily involved with this rankings uh, for 24 7 sports, I'm looking at composite. North Carolina, class of 2013. Number three, Lorenz Bryant. Number nine, Connor Mitch. Number 15, Pharaoh Cooper. <laughs> That just kind of shows you, man. So you just never know. <laughs> yep. I, uh, you know, looking through it, Marquez North was number one, Greg Gilmore, number two that year. Tyrone Crowder actually ended up being pretty good at Clemson, number four. All right. That's all the time we have. Football Insider Edition of the Inside the Game Cox podcast. Please keep uh, subscribing and listening. We appreciate it. We'll be back next Wednesday. I'll be back tomorrow with a daily edition for Tony Morrell. This is JC Sherbert. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. Gracias.